I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a daily podcast supported by Pragati, a flagship media initiative of the Takshashila Institution. We're a bunch of policy nerds based in Bengaluru, and we like to bring a fresh perspective to Indian affairs and an Indian perspective to global affairs. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join us for today's chat. Welcome to All Things Policy. In today's episode, Pranav and I are going to talk all things lunar. You know, in December 1972, an American astronaut named Gene Cernan left the moon's surface to return to the Apollo 17 lunar module. And it's now uh, almost 50 years to the day since Cernan became the last human being on the moon. And over the last half century, we've seen some abandoned projects for sending people back to the moon. But now, just maybe, just maybe, people are going to start walking and jumping and skipping on the moon's surface once again in just a few years. And the reason for this is really the U.S.-led Artemis program. So, you know, the the Artemis program plans to return people to the moon by the year 2025. you know it's not sure not clear if it will meet that deadline but what's interesting is that part one of the things that's interesting is that it's a it's an international project today it's not just a us effort and two you know it sort of reflects american political priorities for example it seeks to put the first woman and person of color on the lunar surface and the first leg of this Artemis program is the SLS or satellite launch system. This was supposed to launch on the 29th of August, you know, act as a sort of pathfinder expedition for the return of humans, but now that launch has been moved to mid-November because of technical difficulties. And Artemis 1, you know, would fly with an Orion spacecraft, which is the sort of spacecraft that is meant to eventually carry humans to the moon, but what it will carry instead three mannequins basically that will basically act as a sort of proof that the spacecraft can work and can bring people safely back from the moon. These mannequins dummies are going to have sensors on them to basically simulate the effects on human beings from space travel. The Artemis 1 is also supposed to release 10 CubeSats into lunar orbit and it's the whole trip is supposed to last uh, something like up to 6 weeks. So quite exciting, but it's really the Artemis program is you know it's an evolution of several failed attempts and changes in american thinking about how to approach lunar exploration and of course it's also a product of the commercialization of the space industry pranav you and i have a lot of things to talk about this and i know you passionately follow the artemis program but before we get to that can you just maybe talk a little bit about the space race where this extraordinary effort from 1969 to 1972 when humans were just landing on the moon and then it just stopped all of a sudden and you know the most conventional explanation perhaps the correct one as well is you know once the americans had essentially won the race to the moon there was nothing else for them to do nothing else for them to show or prove to the soviets but can you tell us a bit about the genesis of the space race to the moon and what has happened since you know gene cernan left the surface of the moon thanks alia it's quite interesting that humans are going back to the moon or at least the americans and maybe their partners are going back to the moon after such a long time the space race is quite interesting because you know we generally think that the americans and the soviets were in a race to the moon but the story about the soviet union is quite different because they ended up claiming that they never had an interest in going to the moon the background to all this without going into the dense historical detail is that for a very long time the americans did not have any success uh, like the soviets the soviets were sending the first man the first woman the uh, you know probes to mars probes to 
Venus and they were doing all these sorts of amazing things. And they had these series of successes, which were called as the Sputnik moment for the Soviet Union. The Americans panicked and John F. Kennedy famously gave this policy directive in a a joint assembly of the Congress, the U.S. Congress, to go to the moon. And essentially, that directive from President Kennedy steered the U.S. space program in such a way that it was geared towards going to the moon. And they spent a lot of money to the extent that there is still no accurate account of the real cost of the Apollo program because there was a new kind of funding that was going on and NASA was spending money across the board and across technological spheres to get the program going. So this was a very hurried program. The safety, the factor of safety was very less. The chance of success was less than 10%. We have to remember that, you know, the Apollo program, even though we had Apollo 11 to 17, the chance of humans coming back safely was very, very low. But somehow it got done, right? And the way NASA was doing business did not sort of be sustainable, which is the reason why by 1971, there were clear doubts about whether the Apollo 16 and 17 would go ahead. There was Apollo 18 and 19 that were planned, but this was clearly not seen as sustainable because one, it was costing too much. It wasn't achieving whatever the US wanted to achieve. The scientific goals that the US had set forth or NASA had set forth were already carried out. And the public interest just faded away. You had Apollo 11, 12, and the famous and very brave story of Apollo 13. And then the interest just faded. So without the public support, without the public interest, and without congressional support, the program was eventually killed off and you had spin-off programs that were supposed to come from Apollo, like using the Saturn V body, the Saturn V rocket body to build a space station, which was Skylab. And that's what was the initial years. It got cancelled because it wasn't sustainable and there was no political and public support. The US was, of course, at this point of time, they were doing a lot of planetary science. They were focusing on sending probes to Mars and outer space, other celestial bodies. Then finally, in 1989, President George H.W. Bush uh, had this brilliant idea to revive the space race or revive the moon race or to go back to the moon. And there was something called as the uh, Space Exploration Initiative where humans would go back to the moon first, and then they would go to Mars. This was not successful, mostly because it did not, as the explanation goes, it did not have an Apollo-like funding, right? Apollo was required massive amounts of funding, and a study done on the Space Exploration Initiative found that over 30 years, it would cost $500 billion. And the funding that the Congress was giving to NASA was just not enough for the program. So within 1989 to 1993, the program skilled. So by the time the Clinton administration had come in and you had Dan Golden as the new NASA administrator, the program was dead and there was no going back to the moon because once the Clinton administration came, the space policy priorities was to continue engagement with Russia, which was this new capitalist country and which was embracing democracy and they wanted to explore more things with Russia. So they had planetary exploration, they had earth science go about and which eventually gave rise to space station, the International Space Station as we know it today. So NASA missions went there and the space, and of course, after the first disaster of the Challenger, under the Reagan administration, NASA became a little more cautious about how it went about planning missions. Then we go to 2003, and in his new Independence Day address, President George W. Bush, son of George H.W. Bush, announces a new program to go back to the moon. This was called the Constellation Program. And between 2003 and 2008, this was quite a well-funded program. 
to get hardware and they had hardware built. They had the Ares-1 rocket that was built and they had the Orion space capsule that was in its initial stages of construction. No, but by the time Obama came in 2008, it was clear that the constellation program was far over budget and uh, it was not sustainable. It was either the Ares program that was going to survive or the constellation program that was going to survive or the space shuttle. And the space shuttle was killed off. There was the constellation program was deemed too expensive. And the Obama administration said, we are not going to go ahead. And that was the end of, as we thought at that time, or people thought at that time, was the end of the moon program once again. But the Congress, the US, especially the US Senate, Republicans in the US Senate who, and the Democrats in the US Senate who sort of held interest in their constituencies, like Florida, where a lot of space industry is located. They argued that, you know, you can't just kill off programs like there were a lot of jobs at stake. And therefore, and they had a legislation that mandated that a future moon program would use the same hardware as a constellation program, which is why we still have the Orion space capsule, which is why we still have the uh, some of the boosters from the space shuttle and that was supposed to go on the Ares rocket. And the SLS today, which is the space launch system, is a culmination of old technology that was born in the 2000s. And after several years of delay, we finally have the Artemis. The Artemis came only in 2018 after President Donald Trump had something called the Space Policy Directive 1 in 2016, which solidified the US return to the moon. And by 2018, they had a strong enough program to call it the Artemis and uh, as we will discuss, the Artemis program has several other layers. So the US, so the culmination of Artemis is essentially several delays and a messy but democratic process of setting a new space policy that will take humans back to the moon. Yeah, what's really interesting to me, Pranav, is uh, in this history is, you know, the degree of how the degree of public and political buy-in can vary, you know, and also, you know, sometimes you have what I think are at least bad plans, for example. I don't think it's possible to bypass the moon and, and go to Mars first off, right? Because, you know, a, a trip to Mars takes about nine months. One way, you're, you're going to stay there for many months. So, you know, the moon is a very good stepping stone, both literally, you know, on your way to Mars, but also as a way to test these capabilities, right? So it's much easier to test what it is like to keep humans in an artificial habitat on another celestial body when that celestial body is about three days journey from Earth rather than nine months journey away from Earth. So, you know, that I think the moon is going to be at the heart of, you know, human exploration of the inner solar system in, in the decades to come, whether or not the Artemis program is the way that happens or not. What's also really interesting to me is, you know, how I think this time NASA has been really sensitive about making this a sustainable program. And I think one way in which uh, they've done that is, you know, both political leaders and NASA have insisted that this be a multilateral effort. You know, the Artemis programs are underpinned by something called the Artemis Accords, in which you have something like 21 or 22 states and territories now that are signatories of it. India is not one of them. And we'll get to that when We'll get to the problems with the Artemis Accord soon. But, you know, so there is that degree of public buy-in. What's also really interesting to me is that, you know, the Artemis program is, I think, very consciously designed to capture public imagination, right? So you, on the one hand, you want to tell people why lunar exploration is important, and then you want to show people how cool it is, right? So that's, you know, that's the emotional part. And, you know, you could spark that imagination when you send people for the first time in 50 years to the moon and, you know, they shoot, you know, say, for example, the dark side of the moon where humans have never been with digital cameras and, you know, maybe take selfies and, uh, you know, 
people are able to use the visual language that we use on Earth today and convey the sense of newness and sense of adventure of being on the moon, you know, because... Obviously, in the last 50 years, there have been a lot of uncrewed probes that have gone to the moon, including two from India. But, you know, we're often asked what the utility of crewed space flight is. And and frankly, one of those things is just the motivation it provides humans. Obviously, there are ancillary benefits from uh, space travel, but uh, I don't think we should underestimate the ability of of crewed space flight, of sending humans to the moon, the ability of that to actually inspire whole new generations of space scientists and engineers. And I think that is very much part of what Artemis seeks to achieve. But, you know, what I'd like to get from you, Pranav, is a sense of how NASA intends to go about this, right? So yes, okay, you'll you'll send the first crewed mission. But, you know, one of the ways Artemis is really different from the Apollo program is that this is meant to be a sustained presence on the moon, right? So how do they achieve that? You know, what is that planned lunar base going to look like? What is the lunar gateway? Can you just walk us through the different elements of the program? Yeah, but before that, you just mentioned something quite interesting. You said, you know, this is a sustained program for the moon and then go to Mars. But it's still not clear whether Artemis is being on the moon itself, that is uh, being on the moon for years and years and years and then think about going to Mars or whether it's about, you know, till 2035 we'll be on the moon and then go to Mars. It's still not clear whether Artemis is a long-term moon mission or a stepping stone to Mars. And that is still... No, what what I mean when I say a stepping stone to Mars is, I mean, yes, of course, it it could potentially be one way in which you can use it, you know, to sort of hop, skip and jump to Mars. But I think more importantly, it's a proof of concept, right? Yeah, Unless you definitely- can figure out how to do this stuff on the moon, you know, it's really difficult to, to figure out how to do this stuff on Mars. Yeah, but what I was trying to say was, it's just NASA and the US program itself is not clear on how to take this forward. They have short-term goals and medium-term goals, but their long-term goals is still dependent on what they achieve in the next five years. But let's move on to the question that you actually asked. NASA has a very interesting proposal to go about this program, right? The first layer of that is obviously the massive rocket that they have, the SLS rocket, which was unfortunately was supposed to be launched in October, but because of natural reasons, right? It had to be taken back to the vehicle assembly building because of the hurricane that was that was a devastating that part of the US. So the SLS rocket is the one. And unlike Apollo, the SLS rocket will not carry a capsule as well as a lander. If you remember, the Apollo program had the Apollo space, they had the Saturn V rocket, they had the Apollo space capsule, and also attached to the rocket was the Eagle lander. Uh, But this is not the case in the new program. You only have the Apollo capsule and a European service module, which is quite interesting. This is one layer of the partnership, and that's one, right? You have that going for it. The second layer is the Lunar Gateway. The Lunar Gateway is a mini space station for the lunar orbit. Uh, it's very, very small. It's not very big at all. And the same way the US carried out its ISS, except with Russia, Russia is not involved in the lunar gateway. You have the Canadian Space Agency, you have JAXA, which is the Japanese Space Agency, and you have the uh, European Space Agency along with NASA. The European Space Agency is contributing a, a module and a robotic arm. The Canadian Space Agency, as Canada does best, is building a new robotic arm called Canada Arm 3. And the Japanese are providing a module for the space, for the lunar gateway, similar to the Kibo on a much smaller scale. That's a collaborative part of it. And then, as I mentioned, the rocket does not carry a lander. So NASA had a separate funding track for a landing system, which was going to be entirely commercial. NASA was not going to design anything. It was just going to give contacts. And SpaceX was finally selected in 2021 
And if you know the SpaceX Starship rocket, it's a massive rocket in itself. It's bigger than SLS, but it works in a very different way. Uh, it goes into low Earth orbit, it refuels, and then it heads to the moon again, which is a very, very interesting concept, which is still yet to launch. It is supposed to launch by the end of this year. And that lander will dock with the Lunar Gateway first, and then the astronauts will again dock with uh, the Orion space capsule, and they'll enter the Lunar Gateway, and then it'll transfer to the lander, and then they'll finally land on the moon. And the entire process is supposed to take about 20 days. It's not like the older mission where you would just straight up land on the moon. You have different sort of things happening. It's a very complex mission, but it's supposed to be a safer and more sustainable mission. And finally, you have all these other programs, right? The Artemis Accords is one more layer where by just signing on to this agreement about how to go about human space exploration, you are sort of buying into this moon program. So you have the Australians sending a rover. You have the Japanese sending a rover. Surprisingly, it's with India. You have the Polar Lunar Space Explorer. I'm sorry, I got the name wrong, but it's a space explorer that is supposed to go to the moon's poles. And it's quite interesting. India has not signed the Artemis Accords, but in a very strange way, with a bilateral agreement with uh, Japan, India and Japan are developing this new rover, which is quite fascinating. India gets to be a part of Artemis without actually going around telling people that it's a part of Artemis. And that's the program, right? That's ultimately the Artemis program. It's the big mission that is to send astronauts and you have a, a whole bunch of smaller missions that are supposed to fulfill the secondary goals, like exploring water on the moon, exploring more and more exploration of the moon surface and so on. Hey, I want to ask you about, you know, going to the dark side of the moon, going to the poles, all that. Do you remember yeah. enough of that stuff? I actually mentioned it, right? I mentioned India. Oh, yeah, I thought you mentioned it. I thought you wanted to talk in more detail. Okay, never mind. Thanks for that, Pranav. That's actually quite illuminating. What's also really interesting is what you talked about, how India is, you know, pursuing this bilateral cooperation with Japan and is in a sense taking advantage of some of the benefits that the Artemis program, the Artemis Accords are bringing without actually participating in those things. Now, this, this does bring us to the, the governance part of this, which is the Artemis Accords itself. There has been a little discussion in India and in public about this, but not much, or if anything, from the government. It's also not clear to what extent the Indian government has engaged the US government on this or vice versa. You know, this is a, a bit of a black box for us, but it's really interesting to think about what is going on actually with the Artemis Accords. Just very quickly, you know, the Artemis Accords basically lays out a few principles on the basis of which you know, countries are get to participate in the Artemis program. Now, uh, there are a grand total of 10 of these principles. Most of these are fairly anodyne. You know, it's using a space for peaceful purposes. It's, you know, about having transparency and interoperability and emergency assistance, which is a crucial part of international space law, registration of space objects, release of scientific data. Uh, then there are a few things out there which are a little problematic. And I think that's where some of the controversy or concerns around the Artemis Accords stems from. So one of them is, you know, preserving outer space heritage. Now, second one is uh, space resources and there's deconfliction of space activities. Now, get to outer space heritage, for example. This seems very anodyne, right? So what this really means is that Americans want to protect their, for example, Apollo 11 landing site in the Sea of Tranquility. And, you know, in a sense, this is really an archaeological site, right, of, of, of immense historical value to the human race as a whole, but perhaps especially to the United States. The problem is that once you say, well, we're going to preserve this historical 
artifact in a sense, this particular landing site. What that means is essentially you're denying that access to that territory to other states. And in a sense, it's almost like declaring private property by stealth on the lunar surface. You know, at least that's the sort of adversarial reading that you can take from it. Similarly, with space resources, you know, a lot around the, you know, Artemis program, really, a lot of the ideas are about, for example, using, uh, like you mentioned, ice, lunar ice, to extract both oxygen for breathing and hydrogen for fuel. But this could also, you know, eventually lead to other kinds of mining. Now, international law around this is not quite clear. So, for example, the Outer Space Treaty, to which all countries, including to which all major states, including India, are party to, you know, says that countries can't claim ownership of parts of the of celestial objects, and that these celestial bodies are not subject to what the law calls national appropriation by claims of sovereignty. The problem is that uh, you can always get away, lawyer your way around this and say, well, you know, we're not doing national appropriation, right? So we are we are just using some resources temporarily for the wider benefit of humankind and so on. Uh, there's also the problem of, well, if a private enterprise is, is doing some of this mining, does that amount to a national appropriation? Probably not. You know, there are these sort of ways around which you can perhaps get your find your way around the Outer Space Treaty. And, you know, this, there's a similar issue potentially with the deconfliction of space activities because, you know, on the one hand, it seems reasonable as a basic safety measure. You want to make sure that, for example, orbits don't cross. You want to make sure that on the lunar surface, you know, spacecraft or other craft, lunar surface craft, don't encroach dangerously into, you know, sites where other such projects are operational. Again, the issue there is it is effectively like declaring private property. And, you know, on the lunar surface, you know, possession is nine-tenths or perhaps um, even more, 99% of the law, right? Once you control or possess a, a bit of territory, it is effectively your private property. It is effectively like national appropriation. And I think these are some of the key concerns around uh, the Artemis Accords. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that India should not sign it, you know, one hurdle or one issue that is cited is that India is a signatory to the Moon Agreement. You know, the Moon Agreement was open for signature in 1979 and it came into force in 1984. And very few space-faring states actually got onto the Moon Agreement, right? None of them really liked it. One of the countries, interestingly, that did ratify the Moon Agreement, and by the way, India has not ratified it, India has signed it only, uh, but one of the countries that did ratify it was Australia, and actually, strangely enough, Australia is part of the Artemis Accords. So, you know, countries have sort of found their way to lawyer their way around these agreements and participate with this American Lunar Exploration Program. And, you know, that is something for India to consider, and that is, I think, a serious debate to have. You know, what are the benefits and the costs of India joining the Artemis Program and signing on to the Artemis Accords as a result of that? Pranav, do you have anything to add? Aditya, also Saudi Arabia, after Australia was one of the original signatories, but also Saudi Arabia joined the Artemis Accord, even though it has signed and ratified the Moon Treaty. So Saudi Arabia is one of these up-and-coming space powers. It wants to have a space legacy of itself, and it has done this brilliant navigation, and it's a part of uh, both treaties. Absolutely. Yeah, you're right. You know, Saudi Arabia signed on to Artemis quite recently. And, you know, it's in a sense, a sort of rivalry with the UAE, you know, in terms of who can have the nicer space program. And by the way, both the UAE and Saudi Arabia are signatories to the Artemis Accord. So it's really interesting how the Artemis program and lunar exploration and I think space exploration in general always reflects our politics back on Earth. We should mention before we... Also, quite interesting is the UAE has signed the Artemis Accords 
but they have also partnered with China to have a moon lander. Again, this is quite interesting. These are countries that were never really thought to be space powers, and now they are using these legal opportunities and they're using these new opportunities to propel themselves as space powers, albeit with not a launch capability or, or anything like that. But but still, because you know China has not signed on to the Artemis Accords because they think it's too American centric. Russia gave the similar argument, even though Russia was invited to join the Lunar Gateway and the Artemis Accords as a throwback to the ISS days, partnership days. So, but but still, what I find is some of these smaller countries, not smaller countries in terms of in terms of their space capabilities, are using all sorts of opportunities thrown up in recent years to sort of gain prestige. Yeah, absolutely. So the UAE is one of those countries that does cross the divide. And before we go, we should mention that there is, at least on paper, uh, an ILRS program that is supposed to involve Russia and China, which is supposed to be the equivalent of the Artemis Accords and program. But nothing's really happened on that. And given the current state of Russia's space program, it's not clear how that's going to proceed. But still, I think China is, regardless of what happens with Russia, going to pursue its own lunar exploration program. And that's going to be part of this space-based rivalry. But anyway, thank you so much, Pranav. We'll, of course, get back to human space flight very soon when we discuss space stations, won't we? Yeah, thank you, Aditya. And thanks for joining us on All Things Policy. If you liked our show, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can tune into them on the IVM podcast app, ivmpodcast.com, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow IVM on social media. The handle is at IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And hey, if you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy, and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle at takshashila.inst or our website takshashila.org.in.